Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called It Happens in the Dark. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 1st, 2018. Over the past two years, I've lost two close friends to sudden cardiac death. Both of them were my age when they died, wives and mothers in their mid-40s, active and healthy, with children ranging in age from 9 to 16. Both deaths came with no warning, no symptoms, no time. No time to say goodbye, no time for a final embrace. One minute they were alive and thriving in the world, and the next they were gone. In the days, weeks, and months that followed each death, I flailed. I grieved for the husband and children each friend left behind. I experienced panic attacks. I slept poorly. Most of all, I raged at the randomness of it all, the futility and unfairness of a world in which stories, beautiful, rich, layered life stories, get cut off mid-sentence without sense or explanation. These friends of mine were hopeful and vivacious women. They wanted to see their children graduate from high school and college. They looked forward to planning their daughter's weddings and welcoming grandchildren into their arms. They wanted to celebrate silver and golden anniversaries with their spouses. They wanted to write, teach, celebrate, worship, love, laugh, dance, serve, travel, explore, live. They wanted to live. I know that I write these words from a position of privilege. I made it through four decades of my life before death hit unbearably close to home. I'm well aware that there are babies whose mothers exit this world just as they enter it. Parents who lose their toddlers to cancer or their school-aged kids to gun violence. Men, women, and children around the world who regularly confront death from starvation, terrorism, war, disease, poverty, abuse, neglect, crime, or natural disaster. My experience of loss is neither unique nor dramatic. It is the human condition. As an 8th century Gregorian chant puts it, in the midst of life, we are in death. This week, the church celebrates Easter, the high point of our liturgical year. With trumpets, with choirs, with candles, Easter lilies, and alleluia banners, we proclaim the great triumph of Christ's resurrection. The wilderness of Lent is behind us, the tomb is empty, and a bright new day has dawned. He is risen, he is risen indeed. I believe these words with all my heart, and I will say them as enthusiastically as I can on Sunday morning. But this year, as I continue to grieve the deaths of my friends, I am drawn more urgently to other aspects of the Easter narrative. I am drawn to what Frederick Beekner calls the darkness of the resurrection itself, that morning when it was hard to be sure of what you were seeing. As our Gospel reading from St. John describes it, the disciples stumbled around in the half-light on the third day after Jesus' crucifixion, running here and there in their confusion. Was it an angel sitting in that unlit tomb? Were those shadows grave clothes? The stranger lingering outside, was he the gardener? Early in the morning, while it was still dark. That's where Easter begins. It begins in the dark. When I was growing up, the key Easter fact to proclaim was that Jesus rose, physically, bodily, literally, from the dead. As long as I believed in the historicity of the resurrection, I was safe. Later, as an adult, I encountered other versions of the Easter narrative. The resurrection was a metaphor in these versions, not a literal historical fact, but a potent symbol of transformation, renewal, and rebirth. Whether or not Jesus physically rose again didn't matter. His friends and followers experienced his continued presence, and that was enough. The fact is, the resurrection happened in total darkness. Sometime in the pre-dawn hours of that Sunday morning, a great mystery transpired in secret. No sunlight illuminated the event. No human being witnessed it. And even now, 2,000 years later, no human narrative can contain it. It exceeds all of our attempts to pin it down because it's a mystery known only to God. Whatever the resurrection was and is, physical, literal, metaphorical, symbolic, its fullness lies in holy darkness, shielded from our eyes. 
All we can know is that somehow, in an ancient tomb on a starry night, God worked in secret to bring life out of death. Somehow, in the utter darkness, God saved the world. Earlier in my life, this ambiguity would have frustrated me. Now it doesn't. It seems exactly right. Why? Because what I've learned in the process of grieving my friend's deaths is that no story my tiny mind can contain would be big enough to redeem such catastrophic loss. Death is such an abyss, such a horror, such a violation, that nothing I can understand or explain will make it okay. Only a mystery as huge as the resurrection will suffice. Only my faith that God will somehow complete every story death interrupts gives me solace. Having seen death up close, I cannot rest in certainty any longer. Certainty isn't enough. I can only rest in mystery. My grief can only bear fruit in the dark. In our gospel story, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus first because she chooses to remain in the darkness. Peter and John leave when they see the empty tomb, but Mary stays, bewildered and bereft. As Nadia Boltz Weber puts it, she remains present to what is real, what is actually happening. She does so even when what is real feels unbearable. In my own life, I'm finding it increasingly true that clarity, hope, and healing come when I'm willing to linger in hard and barren places, places where the usual platitudes fall flat and all easy answers prove inadequate. Jesus comes in the darkness, and sometimes it takes a long time to recognize him. He doesn't look the way I expect him to look. He doesn't let me cling to my old ideas of him. He disappears again just as I grab hold of him. But he comes, he calls my name, and in that instant, I recognize both myself and him. In a beautiful essay on the resurrection, theologian and writer Chris Barnes reminds us, that what actually, reminds us of what actually matters during Holy Week. The question that Easter asks of us is not, do we believe in the doctrine of the resurrection? Frankly, that isn't particularly hard. Our doctrines bend easily to conform to the darkness. But the Gospels ask is not, do you believe, but have you encountered the risen Christ? As I continue to struggle with the loss of my friends, what matters isn't theology. What matters is encounter. What matters is encountering the risen Jesus and finding in the mystery of his resurrected life the hope I need for my own. Often, it's only in retrospect, only as I look back at the gravesides of my life, that I find the beginnings of new life. Poet R.S. Thomas describes the process this way in his poem, The Answer. There have been times when, after long on my knees in a cold chancel, a stone has rolled from my mind, and I have looked in and seen the old questions lie folded and in a place by themselves, like the piled grave clothes of love's risen body. This Easter, May the Christ who rose in the darkness lead us into new life, new light, and new hope. May we know him in the half-lit places, the shadowy places, the hard places. May we dare to linger at the graveside until he calls our names. And may we always share with hope the news of God's greatest mystery. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. For books this week, Dan reviews Robert Reich's The Common Good. Robert Reich was 14 years old when he heard the challenge of President John Kennedy to do something not just for yourself, but for your country. Seven years later, and fresh out of college, he took a low-level internship with Robert Kennedy. It was not a glamorous job, to say the least, he recalls, but I told myself that in a very tiny way I was doing something for the good of the country. Reich went on to serve in three presidential administrations and write 15 books. Today, he is Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. In our deeply divisive times, Reich brings us back to the we the people and our constitutional call to promote the general war welfare. We've made many gains in the last 50 years, but he fears that we have lost our civic connectedness. He challenges us to commit ourselves to public affairs and not just private interests, to the common good and not just self-aggrandizement, 
to all of society's stakeholders, workers, schools, towns, the environment, consumers, and not just to economic shareholders. Despite our many differences, we all have shared ideals, mutual commitments, and reciprocal obligations to society as a whole. And so we voluntarily enter a social contract that binds us together. We agree to respect the rule of law, to tell the truth, and to pay our taxes. We commit ourselves to the public education of all people, to political equality, to economic opportunity, and to protect our democratic institutions. This call to the common good is threatened by a growing and deep distrust in our basic civic institutions, government, corporations, and media. In particular, Reich documents are scorched earth politics, the maximization of corporate profits at any social price, and a free market system that has resulted in well-documented inequalities of wealth and income. Reich admits it will be a daunting challenge to put the common good at the center of our civic life and discourse. The challenge is not just a matter of new laws, different policies, or even ethics. Rather, it's the recovery of a public morality, especially among our political and national leaders. In the last part of his book, Reich commends a proper sense of honor and shame, the resurrection of truth, and a commitment to civic education. One sentence in particular by Reich grabs my attention. If there is no common good, there is no society. At the end of the book, he concludes with a discussion guide with 22 questions. For movies this week, Dan reviews Call Me By Your Name. Set somewhere in northern Italy in 1983, director Luca Guadagnino tells a coming-of-age story of a 17-year-old Jewish-American boy named Ilio Perlman. The film is based upon the 2007 debut novel of the same title by Andre Asiman. Elia is a precocious only child who lives in a rambling rural villa outside a small town with his archaeologist father and Italian mother, Anella. As he does every summer, Mr. Perlman invites an American grad student over to Italy for a six-week stint to help him as an intern. The intern Oliver is also Jewish, and he's duly impressed with Elio's command of classical music, history, and literature. Despite their respective dalliances with the local girls, not to mention their age difference, Oliver and Elio fall in love. Call Me By Your Name debuted at Sundance, won several awards from the Golden Globes, the American Film Institute, and the Screen Actors Guild, and has generally received rave reviews. I thought some of the scenes were cliché, like the departure at the train station, at summer's bittersweet end, the local neighbors at lunch who spoke their loud staccato Italian about politics, and a final fireplace scene with snow falling outside. At least it was a very poignant and totally unexpected ending. This film is in English, Italian, French, and in one scene, a little bit of German. And finally, for poetry on this Easter Sunday, Unbelief in the Physical Resurrection of Jesus by Denise Levertov. It is for all literalists of the imagination, poets or not, that miracle is possible and essential. Are some intricate minds nourished on concept, as, epiph as epiphytes flourish high in the canopy? Can they subsist on the light, on the half of metaphor that's not grounded in dust, grit, heavy carnal clay? Do signs contain and utter for them all the reality that they need? Resurrection for them an internal power, but not a matter of flesh? For the others, of whom I am one, miracles, ultimate need, bread of life, are miracles just because people so tuned to the humdrum laws, gravity, mortality, can't open to symbols' power unless convinced of its ground, its roots, in bone and blood. We must feel the pulse in the wound to believe that with God all things are possible. Taste bread at Emmaus that warm hands broke and blessed. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 1st, 2018, Easter Sunday. I'm Debbie Thomas.